Creative, expertise, technology, patents, and people. Intellectual property is the core of business today. Protecting it is a priority. From a single innovation to large corporate IP issues, we're talking about it here on IP Council. Join IP Council host and attorney Peter Lando, partner of Lando and Anastasi, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts intellectual property law firm Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. Of course, you can learn more about our firm at LALaw.com. I would like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Samit and Company, certified public accountants at www.samit-cpa.com and Sentinel Benefits and Financial Group, a single-source provider for all of your employee benefits and financial services needs at www.sentinelgroup.com. On today's show, we will review the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision in Microsoft versus I4I. On June 9th, the Supreme Court affirmed that the patent statute requires clear and convincing evidence to invalidate a patent. This standard applies whether or not the evidence was considered previously by the Patent Office during its review and examination of the patent application. Microsoft had argued for a lower standard that only a preponderance of evidence is necessary to invalidate a patent. So how did this case arrive at the Supreme Court? How did they arrive at their decision? And what does the holding mean? Joining me today is a returning guest, Gary Ganzi, Managing Intellectual Property Counsel for Siemens Corporation, a subsidiary of Siemens AG, a world leader in technology development. In addition to his expertise in patent law, Gary is a respected inventor and is named on over 25 patents. He is also a former board member and is presently chair of the Patent Office Practice Committee of the Intellectual Property Owners Association. The IPO filed one of several amicus briefs in the Microsoft case. Welcome back to uh, IP Council, Gary. Thank you, Peter. And the opinions expressed in this presentation are my own and do not reflect those of either Siemens or IPO. Very good. I understand. Gary, how about uh, starting us off with some background? How did, how did the, the case get to the Supreme Court? Uh, sure. Um, in, in the Microsoft case, uh, which, uh, which was decided June 9th, uh, a jury in U.S. District Court found that Microsoft willfully infringed a patent owned by I4I for an invention involving an improved method for editing computer documents by storing their content separately from the metacodes associated with the document structure. The district court instructed the jury that, quote, Microsoft has the burden of proving invalidity by clear and convincing evidence. On appeal, the Federal Circuit affirmed. And uh, based on that, um, Supreme Court took that up, took up that issue. I see. And uh, so Microsoft, I understand there was a, there was a large judgment against Microsoft on, um, on this uh, patent infringement. And um, Microsoft appealed the the standard 
for invalidating the I4I patent um, that they were found to have infringed. Um, was there some new art that came to light, new prior art that came to light, or was it a prior sale, or, or what was the, what was the uh, yeah. basis? Uh, well, the, the primary factual issue revolved around a software program known as S4, of which all copies had been destroyed years prior to the commencement of the litigation. The parties agreed that S4 had been on sale in the United States for more than a year prior to the filing of the I4I patent application, and Microsoft claimed that the software had embodied the claims of the patent and that the patent was therefore invalid based on the on-sale bar codified under 35 U.S. Code Section 102B. The dispute was that I4I and S4's two inventors both disputed that the S4 software practiced the key invention disclosed in the I4I patent. Okay, so the parties the parties disagreed over whether the prior S four product, uh, which which they both agreed was on sale more than a year prior uh, to the to the filing of the I four I patent, um, they disagreed over whether that that covered or or the the patent subject matter claim subject matter was embodied in that S four product. Correct. It, it was undisputed. Also, that when examining the patent application that led to the I4I patent, the U.S. patent examiner had never been presented with the S4 software as possible prior art. And on that basis, that was the basis Microsoft argued that the jury instruction on invalidity should not require proof by a clear and convincing evidence standard, but rather a preponderance of evidence standard. And Microsoft first said to, the, to argue that that uh, this level of, uh, of, of burden of persuasion was reduced in a case where the examiner had never seen the prior art, but later expanded that and uh, used that argument as an alternative and expanded to say that uh, in any case, the, the standard of persuasion should be lowered, whether or not the patent examiner saw the prior art. Okay, so they they were they were trying to to pull down the standard to preponderance from clear and convincing. Let's talk just a, a brief bit about that for our listeners um, who, who may not be lawyers, um, and and talk a little bit about the the standards of proof. Right. Well, well, the burden of proof really, and and the court actually uh, in, instructed us on on that subject. The burden of proof is something that's often misunderstood. There are really two parts to it. One is the burden of persuasion, and the other is the burden of production. And to some extent, Microsoft argued that by a preponderance of evidence argument, that it really the only requirement for Microsoft in trying to invalidate this patent was that it had the burden of production, but that the pr burden of persuasion was just preponderance of evidence. Okay. Uh, the and and this is where I think ultimately the court disagreed with Microsoft and said that uh, that that's, that just doesn't comport with with the common law and doesn't comport with Congress's intent when it codified the statute in 1952. Got, uh, yeah, we'll get there. But what on what on what basis did uh, Microsoft base its argument on? What legal basis did they base their argument upon? Their argument was that in, some, in looking back at some Supreme Court cases, that there was some uh, some statements in the earlier cases that said that there might be a difference in in the evidentiary standard if if the if the patent office had not previously seen the prior art. 
Um, and, 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 I, and, and basically, uh, the Supreme Court felt that there was, there was stronger precedent uh, than, than what Microsoft offered. I see. Who, well, who was, um, I, I understand there were several briefs filed on both sides, um, amicus briefs, and I mentioned that the IPO filed one. Uh, who were the supporters of Microsoft's argument? Generally speaking, um, it, it, it's somewhat somewhat difficult, but it certainly IPO uh, supported I, I4I and a, and a stronger patent system. There were a number of number of teams uh, involving, uh, including uh, SAP, Semantic, Facebook, Yahoo, uh, agreed with Microsoft. Uh, on the other hand, certainly the, the generic pharmace- and, and the generic pharmaceutical uh, companies. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, it was kind of mixed. Uh, Apple and Intel also supported Microsoft's position, but IBM did not. Certainly, the the uh, the pharmaceutical uh, uh, and 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 and, uh, and research and biotech groups uh, did not support that position. I understand. Okay, okay. So now the the I four I argument um, that things should be left um, as is. Uh, was based on, as I understand, in um, section section two eighty two of the of the patent statute. Um, what 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 does that say, and and how how was yeah. that developed? Well, it's, I, I think this is really an interest, very interesting nuance in in this case. Um, you know, the, the the although the opinion was unanimous and uh, written delivered by Justice Sotomayor. Uh, and joined by Justices Scalia, Kennedy, Ginsburg, Breyer, Alito, and Kagan, there were two concurring opinions. Justice Breyer filed a concurring opinion in which Justices Scalia and Alito joined, and Justice Thomas filed an opinion concurring in the judgment. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts did not take part in the decision. I think perhaps the most interesting is that, well, let me just say, Justice Sotomayor argued that 35 U.S. Code Section 282 uh, speaks about the, the standard of proof required to invalidate a patent, and um, says that a patent should be re- presumed valid, and that the burden of establishing invalidity rests on the party asserting the invalidity. Mm-hmm. So it didn't explicitly mention the burden of persuasion as being clear and convincing. Right. The the the, uh, the court read into section two two eighty two that the clear and convincing uh, presumption was there. Uh, And the the reasoning was that even prior to the codification, the courts had long held there was a presumption of validity. And they relied very much on the 1934 Supreme Court decision in Radio Corp of America versus Radio Engineering Laboratories. Mm -hmm. There, and as, as as, as enhanced, I guess, by Judge Rich, uh, in the American Hoist decision in the Federal Circuit, indicated that the court indicated that the Federal Circuit never wavered in this interpretation of clear and convincing. The court indicated that the prior common law presumption reflected a universal understanding that a preponderance standard was too dubious a basis to deem a patent invalid, and that by the time Congress had enacted Section 282, the term clear and convincing presumption of validity had long been a fixture of common law, and thus was implicit in the statute. I think the really interesting thing is 
is uh, is is the concurring opinion by Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas was not persuaded that the clear and convincing standard had been codified, but despite that, he reached the same conclusion on the clear and convincing standard because the statute was silent on that matter and thus did not change the common law rule. So I think that that's a very interesting take on 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 this situation. The statute. Different routes to the same yeah. to the same end. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, so, so in, in, in arriving at their decision, uh, different routes to the decision, uh, they, they referred back to the 1934 holding in the, in RCA versus uh, radio engineering and, uh, certainly the 1952 act and, 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 um, to the justices referred back to these things and, and, uh, and unanimously held uh, in favor of I4I. Um, I found interesting uh, the the notion that Microsoft had this alternative argument about uh, information that wasn't in front of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Can you speak a little bit about that? Right. I, I think I, I I think that that the court uh, really um, didn't move further on that and just said that in general. Uh, it, it really doesn't matter from that perspective. They looked at, I think, at a higher level of public policy level of recognizing that that the patent office and, and the administrative process in obtaining a patent should have some level of deference that's higher than just the mere preponderance of evidence. I think some of the arguments, though, that, that have been made, and we, we saw them in some of the amicus briefs in support of that, is that oftentimes... Uh, a patent examiner, and I think, I think it's very important. Uh, a patent examiner in the patent office bring bring much skill and experience in making decisions on patentability. And I think this decision indicates that even in cases where a specific item of information is not presented to the patent office, the examination process involves decisions made by individuals who have sufficient background and knowledge of the state of technology at any given time that most ultimate decisions relating to patentability are sound ones. There are also some practical issues involved, because if, whenever a case goes to, to litigation, there'll always be some item of prior art that hasn't been explicitly looked at. Um, it's very difficult to determine whether an examiner many years earlier had actually reviewed that, that earlier prior art and just had not specifically mentioned it during the patent examination process. In addition, it would bifurcate what types of, of prior art would be afforded different types of burdens um, and, and value and make it extremely difficult in any kind of litigation uh, to say, to, and very confusing for a jury to say that, well, you know, these 10 items of prior art uh, require more deference and, and these require less. I think I think as well. Uh, it's it's unlikely that an, an examiner is going to appreciate uh, prior sale. Uh, how how would an examiner at the patent office have any have any understanding, any knowledge of of potentially a prior sale uh, if that wasn't brought to their attention in some manner? Well, I, I I think I think the court did soften the decision somewhat. Um, and and, and the, what the court held was that it may be easier for a jury to find a patent invalid under the clear and convincing standard 
if the alleged infringer could show that certain evidence had never been considered by the patent office. And I think that, that that's very important. They didn't change the standard of the burden of persuasion, but said that it's clear a jury or, or a court could put more weight on certain evidence uh, if it's new to the patent process. Okay. So I just want to, we'll, we'll close on, on that and um, on that last point when we come back. I, I just need to take a short break right here. And when we return, more with uh, Gary Ganzi. And now a word from our sponsors, Samit and Company and Sentinel Benefits and Financial Group. As a business professional or personal investor, you're continually managing change. Samit and Company, certified public accountants, provides audit, tax, accounting, and financial expertise to help you plan for and manage change in ways that yield predictable long-term benefits. At Samit, you can count on a level of integrity that is beyond compare. Our dedicated team consistently puts forth the extra effort to deliver timely, resourceful solutions. At Samit, it's about your success, not ours. Call us now at 617-731-1222. That's 617-731-1222. Or visit us at samit-cpa.com. Hi, Tom. This practice management conference is great. I'm getting lots of good ideas about managing our firm. Me too. The last session was really interesting. Sentinel Benefits and Financial Group. They were talking about saving for retirement with cash balance plans. What are those? It's a special type of defined benefit plan. It looks like a profit-sharing plan. And what's so special about them? The contributions to the partners can be as much as $200,000, and we don't need to increase the contributions to our other employees by much at all. So can any firm use a cash balance plan? The speaker from Sentinel Benefits said it works best for more senior partners. Our partners haven't been able to put much into the 401k plan at all lately. You should give Sentinel Benefits a call at 781-914-1200 or visit sentinelgroup.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L group.com for more information. That was sentinelgroup.com, S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L group.com or call 781-914-1200 for more information. Need to reach lawyers on the go? Try marketing with new media here on Legal Talk Network. We can start the conversation for you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and shoot us an email or call us at 781-551-9960. Welcome back to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're joined by Gary Ganzi, uh, Managing Intellectual Property Council at Siemens Corporation. Gary, when we uh, when we left off, we were just uh, touching on the uh, I think you referred to it as a softening of the of the opinion with regard to potentially uh, jury instructions when these types of um, uh, this type of evidence wasn't before the the uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office that uh, a jury may be instructed to evaluate uh, whether the uh, the evidence um, is materially new and if so, consider. Consider that when when uh, an invalidity defense has been has been uh, proved by uh, clear and convincing evidence. Um, it I, I had found that particularly interesting and, and predict that this will become part of the the standard jury instruction going forward. Uh, of course, um, there was um, we we also discussed uh, Justice Thomas's 
concurrence. Um, was was there anything um, uh, noteworthy in Justice Breyer's concurrence? I, I, I think so. I think so, Peter. I think that, first of all, Justice Breyer reminded us that that bars to patentability such as obviousness are a matter of law and thus reviewable de novo. And uh, commentators have mentioned that that, that is kind of a, a, a hole in this whole uh, clear and convincing route to, uh, to invalidate a patent. Of course, it didn't apply to the on-sale bar, but it might apply to, to matters of law such as obviousness. Uh, and, and I think Somewhat of a response to that, actually, was was perhaps even more interesting, relating not so much to this particular case, but to the obviousness determination itself, uh, where the, the majority said that that in discussing the obviousness uh, bar to patentability, the court indicated that factual indi- inquiries form the quote background for evaluating obviousness, and 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 that's kind of a move away from uh, declaring obviousness strictly a matter of law and being reviewable de novo. It, it pushes it more into recognition that there are factual back, uh, background to, to the obviousness determination, and that may be something to look, look for in the future. I see. Okay. Okay. Well, um, I, think, I think we've covered the decision. Are there any final thoughts regarding um, yeah, the but, uh, Microsoft uh, opinion? Yeah, thank, thank you, Peter. I would like to say a few things. I think this is an absolutely key decision in patent law. I, I, I believe that in today's world economy, patents have ceased becoming a simple right to exclude. They've taken on much more value as essentially a currency for innovation. And like a currency, the true value of a patent is based on the confidence with which its strength is viewed by the public, rather than simply the penalties that owners can extract from alleged violations of the law. Mm-hmm. Patents help to create an orderly market for innovation, and that helps regulate commerce in a way that directs a healthy basis for competition, while also providing benefits to society. This decision is a vote of confidence in the patent system and to those involved in the granting and prosecution of patents. This confidence is akin to valuing patents as a strong currency. It also reflects a vote of confidence in the patent office. A patent examiner and the patent office bring much skill and experience in making decisions in patentability. And as indicated in the IPO, Amicus brief in this case, the clear and convincing standard also avoids complications in the patent system. It respects existing investments in technology and encourages investment in innovation. If we view, as developers and innovators in today's world do, that patent rights are vital to properly allocate rights in collaborative research and development, we see much more in this decision than a legal technicality or an exercise in interpreting the statute. Instead, we see a strengthening of an innovation framework and a vote of confidence on the use of patents for orderly allocation of rights to use new technology and to optimize benefits to developers and society. Well said. Thank you, Gary. I, I do appreciate those comments, and I, I, I have nothing more to add. I think, uh, I think you nailed it with that. Um, and that about does it for this edition of IP Council. And remember, you can find all of our shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can subscribe to this uh, program through iTunes. And a very special thanks to my returning guest, Gary Ganzi, for joining me today. Gary, if uh, someone wants more information on this topic, how can they reach you? Uh, well, feel free to reach me uh, at, at Siemens or through IPO. Very good. Is there, a, is there an email address? Uh, sure, gary.ganzi at siemens.com. 
Very good. And of course, you can contact me at LALaw.com or email me directly at plando at LALaw.com. Join us next time for another episode of IP Council, and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, Talking Law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.